How's how? Just a quick um, French bulldog check. Are you hearing any of the? <laughs> you guys are making a podcast. this so welcome to the podcast nobody asked for with me ian harris and me graham jones and this week we are we are working on a budget and talking through our favorite films that were made with basically no money yeah or at least films whose budgets i mean i i've approached this like films whose budgets and overall quality are worlds apart like you would expect that there would be a lot more money pumped into something like this yeah there, there, there's definitely like <laughs> if we were cleverer people there's an algorithm or like a, an equation somewhere we could have figured out of just uh i don't know rotten tomato score versus budget rotten tomato but... score budget number of awards nominations box office return something else but yeah we're not going to do that. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll save it for the TED talk. <laughs> we'll get a PowerPoint presentation up. It'll be yeah. great. But so I in in researching this, I thought I would look into the general filmmaking economy. Don't know why I was doing a voice with that. So, do you know what the average cost of a major studio movie is? Is is this your I don't have an economics degree portion of the podcast? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um I don't know what the average uh, is I'm gonna guess what what are we talking Hollywood or so major studio major studio okay uh, thirty five million dollars forty seven forty four so forty seven million pounds okay um I've gone out of my way today to try and convert into pound uh, I haven't uh, apart from the massive section I'm about to go to, <laughs> yeah. um and then it, it can go up to around 70 with kind of marketing money and things mm-hmm. like that to start the conversation on the other end of the spectrum i thought it'd be good to uh play comparison a little bit do you know what the most expensive film ever made was so not in terms of films that lost money or anything like just that pure uh, budget to just make pure it. money spent on the film i feel like it's got to be it's obviously got to be fairly recent and i feel like I don't know. I, I think like Endgame must be up there or some of the Marvel productions. So out of... So I have the top six uh, just so I could crowbar... Not crowbar. I have the top six so I could include something that wasn't explicitly a Disney film. <laughs> so the top five biggest budget films are all Disney and they c- cross two franchises. So Marvel and Star Wars. No. Oh. Interesting. Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. So the biggest budget on a film ever is Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. They spent $379 million on it. Jesus. Endgame is third with $356 million. Age of Ultron second. Uh, Infinity War is obviously fourth of Endgame. You know, they're not going to spend 300 plus on Endgame and then make infinity war for like 20 quid or something <laughs> and then at world's end comes in at 300 million dollars at fifth with justice league tied <laughs> because justice league obviously i mean when i think oh what movie clearly had a lot of money on i think 
maybe it's the it was the Henry Cavill moustache budget. I mean that that definitely pumped that budget up. Is it also the fact? I mean, are we talking just the the first cut, or does this include the Snyder cut money and the Joker reshoots? And so I think it's just the first cut. That's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> Would the Snyder cut count as a TV movie now? I guess so, because it's being it's being yeah. done in episodes, right? Four four one hour episodes. Yeah, but I, I also included. Uh, so remember Battleship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. $209 million. Jesus. And I, all right, quick quick aside before we jump into the um, movie recommendation that nobody asked for, because that is obviously where we're going to go next. Do you know what today sort of is, Ian? Uh, are, we, are we being professional and pretending today is Thursday, or are we just being realistic and saying today is Monday? I know, today is, today is definitely Monday. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it is St. David's Day today. It is St. David's we'll, Day. Which I will throw out speculated that i was going to do my top three welsh actors on our instagram but i hilariously with, with every ounce of my being <laughs> i just want to say michael sheen three times and that's not insulting the wide array of welsh talent out there i just like michael sheen slightly more than i should and luke evans luke evans is great taron edgerton are you hoping that saying michael sheen three times has a sort of beetlejuice effect and he'll that, I, I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm hoping that's the way it works. But I'm not sure. I just feel like, yeah, I feel like if we say Michael Sheen enough and something disparaging about the crown, he'll, he'll suddenly <laughs> rear his head and come in. So, yes, today isn't David's day. Today is sort of, but not quite, because this year isn't a leap year. A full year since the last time we saw a a movie in the cinema pre-pandemic. Really? Yes. Oh, I, I was wondering when that was going to We saw that on a leap year. Yeah, it was on the 29th of February. <laughs> oh, fuck. I, I was expecting it to pop up on like a Facebook memory thing. Yeah, yeah. And I like, started to get weirded out that it hadn't yet. Would you like to... We, we have mentioned it in passing, but do you want to uh, illuminate the listeners on what the last film we saw in the cinema was? The last film pre-pandemic was at the Prince Charles, and it was the wonderful wonderful adaptation of the um hp lovecraft story the color out of space starring friend of the podcast nicholas cage ah nicholas cage (laughs) it was so fucking weird i i I really want to do a double bill of color out of space in mandy but i'm worried it would give me a stroke it was yeah it's it's extremely bizarre i mean and that was that was probably like one of the last days that i did so we watched that we watched um, a game of football in a crowded pub with lots of strangers. Oh yeah! And then was I the, was it the Dutch pub we went to? Uh, no, it was. Um, I think you know we went to the Dutch pub beforehand, and then we went yes. to the Canadian pub afterwards. So we did a, yeah. a veritable tour of the world. It was great because we had a, we had a, yeah we had a couple of pints at the Dutch pub. Just said like, oh we'll just have a pint or two now, and then realised the drinks we were drinking were like twelve percent or something. Yeah. Like, oh cool! I'm dead already. <laughs> But yeah, so I just just thought I'd throw that out there. Hopefully, not too much longer until we can return to the cinema and the Prince Charles. I will, yeah, I, I will be putting my Prince Charles membership to good use with the cinemas reopen again. Yes, yes, most it, it, most it might to, to the point it might counterintuitively get in the way of recording a movie podcast. <laughs> I mean, we should just do it from. We'll do an on. We'll do an on-site. Uh, Prince Charles um, recording for 
I don't know how. I'm sure they won't want us to, but we'll... we'll Watch yourself, like, huddled in, like, that Kevin Smith cubicle. Yeah, yeah. Actually, no, that's the women's toilets now, isn't it? So that 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 was a joke that was accidentally really creepy. <laughs> even, even creepier than a joke that has us huddled in toilets. But let's, let's ignore this toilet humour and go on to... Uh, what is your movie recommendation nobody asked for this week? So my recommendation uh, this week is actually the reason that this episode is happening. Because... Um, so we have a extensive um, shared Google Sheet document with all of our episode ideas. I think there's close to 200 in there. So apologies if you thought this podcast was ending anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. um, That's four, four years <laughs> worth of titles. And I was watching this film, looking it up afterwards and saw that the budget was only $5 million. And I was like, shit, that's cheap for, for what this movie is. Let's do a podcast about I think the idea name was uh, movies that were made for $5 million or less, but obviously we, we've tweaked that somewhat. Anyway, the film in question is Dallas Buyers Club, which is just a phenomenal, phenomenal film. Um, it has got some incredible talent in there. Obviously, Matthew McConaughey, Jared Leto. Did, did they both... They, they were both nominated, but did they both win? Yeah, they both they both won. I think it was the first time that both had been nominated and both won for actor and supporting since... I believe it was a film called Mystic River. I've not seen the film Mystic River, but so yeah, I mean, it just just a great film. It follows um, Ron Woodruff, played by Matthew McConaughey, who's basically diagnosed with HIV in the eighties at a time, I guess, when the disease was still really stigmatized, and also critically and critically for the story of the film, that access to the treatment was kind of non-existent. So he basically took things into his own hands, decides that he wants to be able to medicate and and survive this disease and he basically smuggles this medication into texas and sets up a distribution center for hiv treatment and he's battling against you know the fda who are trying to shut him down etc etc it's it's such a well done movie i mean matthew mcconaughey i think really his like proper kind of a breakout film um he went full on method for it as well. I think he lost something it, like twenty two kilos preparing for the defi- role. It was it was definitely the film where you couldn't come up with excuses for why he wasn't good anymore. Yeah, because he'd definitely done some more serious stuff, but he always was still. He's just about that surfer dude. Yeah, but yeah, so such a good film, and as you mentioned, he won won the best Oscar. Aster, Aster Oscar. He won the best actor Oscar because now I can talk. So yeah, that is that is my uh, recommendation for this week. Nice. And what if that's not what you're looking for? What if you wanted something, say, a bit, uh, a bit lighter, a bit lighter in tone? I'm sure you mean, uh, as in the the tone of the colours on the screen, rather than uh, rather than tone of the movie. I would go for a fantastic horror movie that was made actually on a relatively modest budget of only nine million dollars. Um, oh, nice. And that would be Ari Aster's Midsummer. Ah, cool. I did not see that choice coming. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, what What more can you say about a film that's been mentioned 27 times other than the fact that you need to watch it? And if you haven't watched it by now, then I, I don't know what will make you watch it, but we're going to mention it again next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. No, so, uh, so without further ado, and with no more whatever it was he said about a lily 
This is our episode on films made for basically no money. And it is over to you, sir. Make it rain single dollar bills on me. My first choice then, so I've decided to do mine from the most expensive down to the cheapest. Um, and th- there were a lot of films to choose from. So this is... I love saying that this is on the pricier side, but I know full well how cheap it was. <laughs> uh, but this was mainly picked because, one, it is one of my favourite films. And I think it's often forgotten by a lot of people because it, it was it was the main actor's breakout role. But he's now gone on to so many kind of A-list things. People struggle to remember this was, uh, this was a thing. It's 2008 Bronson. So Bronson was a Nicholas Winding Rifen film, which is a name I have probably butchered and will butcher again. I st- I've, se- I've tried to say it many times and still not entirely sure how it's, how it's pronounced. I, I don't even I, think, I, think Nicholas knows how he says his own name. I, I, I googled some Danish guy saying it. and I'm fairly sure that was right, but I could be wrong. So I'm just going to call him Nick from now on. <laughs> um, or the director. So uh, it stars Tom Hardy as Bronson, who originally was a man called Michael Peterson. It's a biopic of Britain's most notorious prisoner. So he spent a crazy percentage of time in solitary confinement. And he's been in prison longer for things he did in prison than what actually he was sentenced for to get there in the first place. He just starts fights. There was a riot on a roof at one point. It's just insane. Just talking about Charles Bronson. So Charles Bronson uh, obviously isn't his name. It is the name of an American action star. But Michael Peterson needed to change his name to something that sounded more threatening. Because when he was originally released from prison, he decided to see if he could survive on the bare-knuckle boxing scene. So I had to change his name. Uh, He now goes by Charles Salvador, which feels a lot more distinguished, I think. Is he he still alive? Yeah, yeah, he's still alive and he is still in prison. Yeah, I I saw recently, I don't know if you've watched Dark Tourist at all on Netflix. Yes, yes. There's an episode where he goes to um, this weird, uh, like, museum of it's like in some random rural town in the uk and the guy who owns the museum knows bronson and he's got all his art he's got yeah i think he's got a a bunch of bits of his art yeah and he he has a phone call with him and the woman who is engaged to so one of these like people who has a fascination with prisoner you know the like get engaged with prisoners outside of prison and yeah they have this phone call and it's it's so clear that he is so adapted to like you took like institutionalization is a thing and he is fully like he i don't think there's any way he could function not in prison that is that is oh, God, no. his life that is where he needs to be yeah so have you so he's also as well as like we said there as well as an artist he's also like unnecessarily strong so did you know he's released a fitness book no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I, it is, it is a book I own. It is pride and place on my bookshelf with the other book I talk about the most, which is the uh, O.J. Simpson book, which I will talk about at some point because I find it fascinating. But it's called Solitary Fitness. Right. So apparently it's, it's all about, uh, obviously, him trying to stay fit in solitary confinement. So it's all about 
body weight stuff and body resistance and things like that. But apparently at one point, he could do 172 press-ups in a minute. How? Quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, 1,727 in an hour, which is one every two seconds for an hour. I suppose there's not much else to do. Yeah, so so apparently when Tom Hardy rocked up to him, Charles Bronson thought he looked a bit, he thought he was too small to play him. Uh, And then Tom Hardy did what Tom Hardy does and packed on a load of weight in like five weeks. And some would say him, so he's huge in Bronson. He looks like a man who could do 1,727 press-ups. But this brings us on to the, the main reason this is on this list, which is the budget. So, Bronson was made for £150,000. So, for £150,000, you could buy a four-bed semi-detached house in Colwyn Bay, basement studio flat in Islington, or a brand-new Porsche 911 Turbo S, which is research that has completely fucked up my targeted ads. <laughs> because my targeted ads now clearly think I've got a promotion. They clearly think... I have a lot more money to spend than I do. Um, and it made ultimately one and a half million. So it did make a lot of money based on, you know, it's over, well, it's around, what, I was going to say around. It is 10 times its budget, which is which is crazy. Did, sorry, just about, could you really get a basement flat in Islington for that little money? Basement studio flat. Oh, okay. So it's... Tiny. Even so, I would assume I, that you could get like a car parking space for that kind of money in London. I, I'm <laughs> fairly sure a car parking space would be bigger than this flat. <laughs> like it is, it is, it looks like a cheap flat, and it's a basement, so I don't think it's got natural light either. Okay. So it's not, yeah, it's not not ideal. <laughs> but the way they kept the the film down, uh, sorry, the the uh, the money down is obviously Tom Hardy was a relatively up and coming actor at the time, so. You aren't really spending out on cast and crews and things. And the director, as we will go on to, is very experimental in what he does. So the whole film is framed as like a stage performance of Bronson talking through his life and how all he ever wanted to be was famous, which kind of comes on to that phone call you were talking about in Dark Tourist, where you Mm. can tell he's just lapping up the attention of... Oh, loves it, yeah. yeah. And Charles Bronson does seem like a character developed by Michael Peterson to the point where uh, the director was saying, like, you can't... It is a biopic, but it's a biopic of this guy who's basically made his own story, like his Mm. own backstory. It was originally supposed to be Jason Statham, but he turned down the role. Uh, Guy Pearce was going to be their second choice. And it... Bronson, I, I... at last check it's on netflix or prime i think but it's one of those films where if if we if we on our extensive episode idea excel sheet we there is one of kind of perfect casting and i can't see anybody else playing this role tom hardy is perfect for it yeah charles bronson himself wasn't allowed to see the film but his mum liked it, and that was good enough for him. It was only years later that he actually got the approval to watch it because they smuggled out a recording of him that introduced the film at uh, film festivals, and they hadn't had pre-approval. Okay. The guards didn't know it was done, and he just, well, went into solitary again, basically. But 
it's an incredible film and the budget was so cheap that i it doesn't feel like it's a cheap film and by in comparison to some of the films on this list this is very expensive <laughs> but it doesn't feel like it's a low budget film it feels like a a very good very funny very experimental piece of cinema the director so i'll try one more time nicholas so it is winding nicholas yeah. winding i think it's rifen i don't know if i like him because i mean i watched drive yeah drive I, is fantastic so i watched bronson i watched drive and it was like you know what i love this director but i think i actually just like bronson and drive did you watch neon demon so I haven't seen that. I've seen Valhalla Rising, which has 120 lines of dialogue in. It's Mads Mikkelsen. It is. It, it, he's very good because it's Mads Mikkelsen. But also it's one of those films where you immediately go to Wikipedia before it's even finished just to check what the fuck is happening. Yeah. I Only God Forgives. It's kind of similar. It's just like it, it was it was watchable, but it, it kind of felt like it cheapened like drive is one of my favorite films of all yeah. time and one of the best things in drive that i really enjoy is actually the use of silence yeah and but then you watch only god forgives and he kind of does the same thing again and you mentioned Valhalla rising has 120 lines of dialogue and it's like i kind of felt that drive was a little bit cheapened after watching only god forgives because yeah. I thought, okay, well, this is a really cool thing that he's done with Drive, and actually, it turns out he doesn't like. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't like that much. much. <laughs> it was, and only God forgives. Ryan Gosling had nineteen lines of dialogue in. Apparently, he was and by he, I mean the director, not Ryan Gosling. That would just be a weird segue. But apparently, when he was given Bronson to direct, he was currently directing Miss Marple episodes. So it really was a step up for him. But Bron- oh, uh, sorry, I also I absolutely got my two Nicholas White and Refn films mixed up because I was talking about Only God Forgives. And do you know why I thought that was Neon Demon? Because all of there's so much neon in that film. Yeah, yeah, no, to, 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 to be fair, because uh, Neon Demon, I think, is it, it's Ellie Fanny? Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I haven't seen that yet. And it, it has put me off seeking it out because I wasn't a massive fan of... Valhalla Rising was interesting. Only God Forgives felt just kind of weird yeah so right i'm just gonna say the word only god forgives and can you just dub that over every time i said neon demon and that yeah we'll be fine we'll be fine okay only god forgives (laughs) (laughs) so so yeah that's my that's my first choice the 150,000 pound bronson solid solid as a rat so my first choice Similar to you is not the cheapest. Um, there's definitely cheaper films out there, but I think when you think of it in the context of how good the film is, when you think of it in the context of, I guess, its place in cinema history, particularly comedy cinema, how important a piece of cinema it was, it, it's really quite impressive when you consider how little it was made for. And that film is Monty Python's Holy Grail. Good choice. So... Holy Grail had an initial budget of $200,000 and it raised, ended up raising a further $200,000 from 10 private investors, including Pink Floyd. So they had money directly from Dark Side of the Moon go into funding Holy Grail. I, I didn't realise they were into space exploration. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did make notes here to 
pause for Ian to make a word <laughs> reference after last week. So well done. Yeah, um, we've we've got our niche, Graham. We've got our niche. <laughs> and you know what? I'm 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 quite comfortably numb to it. Nice, well done. Two for two. Did my research after last week when I couldn't do a picture uh, Floyd fun. Fun? Fun. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> also funded from uh led zeppelin and genesis as well um i, I didn't realize that yeah so and apparently terry gilliam basically said that the main reason a load of rock stars decided it was a good idea to to spend their money funding films is that it was a good tax write-off because apparently at that time um income tax in the uk got as high as 90 percent oh, fucking hell for um certain incomes which i'm assuming would be the kind of incomes that you get if you're in pink floyd or Led Zeppelin. yeah the, the kind of incomes my uh porsche searches have now put me into as well <laughs> was it life of brian then that george harrison george harrison yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So basically, there's a lot, a lot of Monty Python be um, boiled down to Just smelting down gold music. records. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they really leaned in to the lack of budget in some of the aspects of the film, and I think really gave rise to one of the best visual gags in the movie, if not cinema. In cinema, surely. <laughs> Which is the. Um, it basically turned out that they couldn't afford horses in the movie. So what they did instead is they had the knights miming that they were riding horses whilst their faithful porters ran alongside them, banging together two coconut shells, which is just genius. And obviously that then went on to the, the follow-on gag about the migrating swallows carrying coconuts to Camelot and <laughs> the the uh, weight ratios of, of a laden swallow, whether or not they're African or European swallows. Oh, such, and a, also, such a fucking good film. It, it, it's fantastic. And also led to, you know, the Germans get a bad rap some of the time when it comes to having a good sense of humour, but they actually, the translation of the film in Germany was known as Knights of the Coconut. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I, uh, I don't know if I prefer that or not, but it's... <laughs> It's up there with best translated titles. Well, and I'll give you another one that's not related to the coconuts, but in Japan, it was known as the Holy Sake Cup. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? <laughs> Some other ways that they lent into their like small budget. So it led to the, the ending, which is where just it the police rock up and arrest the knights assuming that actually the film is just kind of being played out by some absolute nutters running around Scotland dressed <laughs> up as uh, the Knights of the Round Table because originally the ending was going to be like this big budget battle between the Knights, the French and the Killer Rabbit. But whilst that does sound hilarious, I feel like the you know the way they did it was much more like Python. Was it um Game of Thrones was very good at saving money by not showing battles? Because you had season one leading up to this big climactic battle scene, which is in the book. And instead they had Tyrion Lannister yeah. knocked unconscious <laughs> just before it. And then yeah. you cut to him waking up. That's, that's, that's a very good point. They also had, uh, so all of the extras in the film were um, either students or basically like passers-by or tourists. So the final army scene with all of the... <laughs> I guess additional knights. There was an army of 175 students, each with whom were paid two pounds each, um, and travel to be in the movie. And then you also have the wedding scene, so with the famous Spamalot song. And that wedding scene, the extras were just tourists visiting the castle, but were just like cajoled into to being in the movie. 
<laughs> I always forget that that castle still would have had tourists. Yeah. That people people would go there for any reason other than it was the castle in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah. And that castle was the... It was one castle, but played the role of every single castle in the film. <laughs> yeah. You also had the fact that um, all of the knights so they they obviously they couldn't afford to have like proper armor so they all of the their costumes were knitted they're made out of wool oh fucking hell. obviously they filmed it on location in scotland where it was cold and wet so the basically all of the pythons were like they would they were not best pleased apart from actually graham chapman had actually had chainmail, but everyone else because he was obviously king arthur everyone else just had these woolen sodden woolen costumes so there was apparently a real battle to get back to the hotel which had very little hot water in order to i guess get comfortable again after after filming yeah that's that's basically trench foot waiting to happen yeah absolutely (laughs) so i just i pulled up the uh picture of all the knights and now you've now you've pointed (laughs) it out that's so obvious they're just wearing like woolen hoodies yeah (laughs) But yeah, actually, you don't notice it that much when you watch it. At least, I—I I mean, I—I I certainly didn't until I until I read up on it. Well, it's like you said, but because because they do that, because they are leaning into the cheap aesthetic of it all. Yeah, it kind of helps. Yeah, I think so. Like, it 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 would be weird having full on like Braveheart level knights in it. Yeah, they uh, some quite good special effects given the budget. I guess most most notably the the Black Knight when he has his limbs cut off. Um, and so it turns out, so John Cleese is the Black Knight for most of the shots, apart from when when the Black Knight loses his first leg, they had found a local one-legged silversmith um, who stood in for John Cleese when he had the first leg chopped off. Nice. And <laughs> it was actually John Cleese who, when both legs had gone, that they had like yeah. buried in the ground, but I think it was Michael Palin that made the joke that they reused the silversmith for that as well, so they only had to do one one leg hole <laughs> rather than two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, look, and as I say, like despite all of these, all of these things, all of the the facts that it was made for, you know, comparatively little money, it, it is it is consistently rated as one of the best comedy movies ever. It's, I mean, Best in Film gave it second place. Total Film gave it fifth best. Channel 4 in a, a recent survey, it came back as the sixth best comedy movie of all time. You also have, and I, I don't know if it, this is definitely true, but I believe it is the first movie that spawned a musical, which now the musical is now becoming a movie. Must be. I don't know anything else that's done that. <laughs> If you, listening, know <laughs> a film that's become a musical that's becoming a film again. I... Uh, no, M- Matilda's still the book, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Because they're doing uh, a Matilda musical film that's based on the musical, but that musical is based on the book, not on the film. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, Matilda has the most, I think, iterations of, like... <laughs> well, they're, they're making two films. Oh, really? Yeah, they're doing. So they're doing. There is a musical adaptation of Matilda, which is a musical everyone should listen to. It is amazing. So good. Uh, and then I think they're also doing an animated, like Netflix film of it. Oh, nice. So of Matilda, not yeah, of yeah. the musical. So rather awkwardly, you keep getting these casting announcements coming out. It's like, wait, no, I thought that was that was going to be someone else. It's like, <laughs> no, no, different, different Matilda. Awesome. I look forward to that. Yeah, well, Matilda 
stage show is one of the best um best out there when i grow up is is the single most uplifting and depressing songs at the same time that i've ever listened to i have the kids yeah well we have the kids we do have the kids wait no that's how that sounds like we have kids (laughs) uh they did they did a kids book version of it and we were at a signing of it yes which was uh which was fun the uh so there's 527 jokes in the movie i think 40 of them are stuffed into the opening credits um (laughs) that's fair there is with a lot of llamas yeah so it basically works out that there's one joke every 10 and a half seconds or one joke for every 759 dollars spent on the movie which i think is a very (laughs) very good return and in in closing and just to illustrate how impressive it is to get such a good comedy film for the money that they use to create to create Holy Grail, I'd like to give you the budgets of some other comedy films over the years. <laughs> White Chicks, thirty-seven million dollars. Fucking hell. Norbit, sixty million dollars. That's a hundred and fifty Holy Grails. Daddy's Home Two, sixty-nine million dollars. What Women Want, a, a podcast favourite, $70 million. So that is, in two films, two Mel Gibson comedies, nearly $140 million there, just across two. Don't Mess With The Zohan, $90 million. Fun With Dick and Jane, $120 million. This is the equivalent of 300 Jesus. Holy Grails. <laughs> it's, I think... Um... Is it The Adventures of Pluto Nash is always the one that gets bought up because that was $100 million and it made less than eight. I, I, that's impressively bad. <laughs> but yeah, look, it's, it's such a good film. And I also, I also really like the fact that it was sort of part financed by some tax-dodging rock stars as well. So... There were, I, I was contemplating for my next choice doing Evil Dead. So the original Evil Dead film was made for $350,000, which is peanuts given, given how much the film list you just uh, said was. But I've decided to go for another horror movie. Uh, it is a cult classic. There's no, no way around that. But this film was made for 3 million Japanese yen. Which comes to about £20,000. So for £20,000, you can buy two nights in the Villa Machiavelli, which is the most expensive Airbnb on Airbnb. It's a fully renovated 10-bedroom mansion that has indoor and outdoor pools, grounds, a terrace overlooking vineyards, and a gym. And that's in Tuscany. Downside there is you have to buy four nights. So you couldn't even buy a stay in that Airbnb (laughs) for this money. Uh, You could buy a brand new mini three-door hatchback or a bottle of Glenlivet's Winchester Collection 1966 vintage. Oh, that's that's intriguing. I'd really love to, like, my brain knows that no sip of whiskey is worth that money. But at the same time... I would love to see what it tastes like. I have the same with, you know, when they like recover bottles of wine from the Titanic and shit like that, where it's like, I don't want to, but I really want to. (laughs) Like, my worry is, I'm sure if you've spent £20,000 on a bottle of whiskey, everyone is going to say it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I I would want to be given it, but in like a cheap Jack Daniels bottle. (laughs) 
And then if I try it, it's like, you know what, this is amazing. But I'm certain I would just say, oh, this is all right. Yeah, this is this is good. Yeah. This is... <laughs> to be fair, though, we spent, we both spent separately like 40 quid on a single shot of beer that was 57%. And <laughs> I think we can both safely say it tasted like spicy soy sauce and we never want to taste it again. <laughs> so it's the... It's called... I've still got the empty bottle, because uh, why not? So it's called Strength in Numbers. Uh, it's 57.8%, and it was uh, Brewdog, and it was and another brewery, right? And yeah, yeah. it was... For our virtual New Year's Eve, we FaceTimed and drank this drink. It's one of the single most repulsive things I've ever had. <laughs> it's something to tell the grandkids... That we tried the strongest beer ever made, but fuck me, it was awful. No <laughs> beer should have an aftertaste that you can describe as it was like soy sauce. No, not at all. But, but yeah, so maybe maybe we would be honest when it came it comes to twenty thousand dollar whiskeys. Maybe. But, um... <laughs> well, no, but that's the thing. I would be honest if I didn't realize I was drinking it. But if somebody yeah. you know had spent twenty thousand dollars in a bottle of whiskey, I'm not going to be the one to tell them it will taste the same. <laughs> but I digress. So this film is called One Cut of the Dead and it was released in 2017 and it is fucking amazing. It ticks all the boxes for me in that I'm a wanker and it's a film not a lot of people have heard of. Tick. Uh, it features a 37 minute real continuous take shot. Tick. And it's a meta comedy. So tick. It's, it's brilliant. So um, I don't want to ruin the plot because it is one of those films where the less you know about it, the more you will enjoy the film. Absolutely. So I would strongly recommend not watching trailers for it, not watching, uh, not reading reviews or anything like that. So I'm going to try and keep this as plot light as I can. So you can still listen. It's not going to ruin anything, but I strongly encourage you to seek the film out. And so you have to, you have to do this because I watched it, and after the first bit. I was so confused <laughs> yeah. as to what was going on, but I'm so glad that I was that confused and then had the payoff of what happened. So yeah, yeah. just just watch it. Yeah, so simply put, it's about a group of film students making a low-budget zombie film in an abandoned uh, like water filtration plant, and then a real zombie apocalypse breaks out. And it's the director going rogue and trying to continue filming the film as zombies are actually attacking them. And yeah, it's, it is a, a single continuous shot, which, as we've mentioned repeatedly, is, is my jam. But what's, what do you think is a good way to save money on a film? Is it, um... sorry, did, did you say have the majority of the cast pay to be in the film? Well, you're correct. So, one one cut of the dead was in essence the final project of an art and directing workshop held by. So I'm not sure if it's the Enbu seminar or the Enbu seminar, but it was the director was using it as a workshop. Um, a lot of the cast paid to do the course that led them to do this film. Obviously, then when it became a cult sensation, so. It's insane, but the film made a thousand times its budget. So it was made for twenty thousand pounds and it made twenty million. It's 
it's just crazy and obviously when they realized it was becoming a so it really kind of it won a lot of audience awards at film festivals and then it became like this film like it was a proper word of mouth kind of marketing campaign and once it started becoming successful obviously they then paid the people who were in it because they're not dicks but it's amazing it is a proper love letter to amateur filmmaking it's really funny it's like graham said it is so fucking out there that i was enjoying what i was watching but i was also you you know when you're told you will like a film yeah and something's not quite like so for the first part of the film you will be so weirded out that it's like oh okay so it's yeah i think the easiest way to say it without ruining anything is it starts wrapping up when you didn't think stuff would yeah and (laughs) there's the one of the things that i really enjoyed with it as well is like in that sequence there's stuff that happens and you're kind of like what the fuck but then also everything is kind of mental and like crazy and it's continuing you kind of forget about it but then it's kind of pertinent as well and again it's hard to talk about without spoiling it but it's it's just it's so cleverly made and i think a real you know and when you think about these low budget films i think it's it's really distilling the essence of filmmaking down into telling a story in a really creative way but not necessarily having to chuck loads of money and you know there's lots of big budget films out there that don't tell stories in anywhere near as interesting a way as the as this movie does yeah it's 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 just weird (laughs) i thought i found another low budget continuous take film but i can't find the actual budget anywhere so I can't confirm nor deny. But have you heard of Lost in London? I haven't, no. So Lost in London was directed by Woody Harrelson, and it follows him um, over the course of one night in London. But it was done, so it was done as uh, either a series of long takes or as a long take, but it was done live. Interesting. So they streamed them making the film to various yeah. cinemas in London. That's pretty cool. So I can't I can't figure out why, but you it <laughs> it must have been a hell of a hell of a thing to film. I guess the why is just like pushing the envelope yeah. is of um pushing the envelope of filmmaking, right? Like that's that's probably not been done before. Yeah, I mean it's also it's Woody Harrelson and Willie Nelson is in it. So I'm going to assume weed had a lot to do with the decision making <laughs> too. But yeah, so that's my that's that's my second choice. Uh it's One Cut of the Dead, a film I strongly recommend to everyone. It was made for the cost of a three-door mini hatchback and it's fucking amazing. It's currently on Shudder, which is like the Amazon horror channel yeah. add-on which I would recommend you get even just for the free trial because there's so, so many fucked up things on there. Yeah, I did the free trial um, in order to watch... What did what did I watch? I feel like there was a bad movie night that we watched on there. No, the free trial we did for bad movie night was Stars Play because oh, it had, yeah. had the Wicker Man on it. Yeah. I can't remember. I did it for something and ended up watching One Cut of the Dead and Cannibal Holocaust, which are two very different films. Very different films. <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust was done 
quite cheap, I'd assume. Uh, yeah, that is because most. I mean, any any film that can be described as any type of exploitation cinema, you'd assume the budget will be quite low. Uh, Mad Max was very close to being on my list as well, and that's exploitation. Yeah, uh, I think that was made for less than a million. So Cannibal Holocaust was a hundred thousand dollars, but also you know the cost of the souls of the people that were in it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> right, so paint me, uh, paint me a word picture, Graham. What is your next choice, and how much will it cost me? So low budget horror films. I am gonna go initially one better than you in terms of how much it costs to get made, but then there was a bit of extra money pumped in after. But the film that I'm going to talk about is, I believe, the second most profitable film ever made. And that movie is a film we've spoken about previously on the podcast, um, and it's Paranormal Activity. So Paranormal Activity was made for an original $15,000. There was $215,000 thousand dollars more pumped into it by the studio to do a new ending at the request of steven spielberg good old good old steven good old steven stepping in fucking shit up <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna lie i'm currently googling what was the most profitable ever made was it blair witch it was blair witch yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um so paranormal activity yeah it will will take the sorry it was an extra two hundred thousand dollars so two hundred fifteen thousand dollars in total for the budget with the new ending which is quite impressive, really, because obviously they kept basically everything else, just shot a new ending for, like, for fifth for two hundred thousand dollars, and yeah, it's 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 strange that it cost that much just to do a new ending. But there we go. That's what happens, I guess, when a studio gets involved. It made worldwide uh, one hundred ninety three million dollars, so that's a return on investment of eighty nine thousand six hundred sixty seven point four percent. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> It's yeah, it's nuts. And again, I think I mentioned this before, but collectively, the franchise to date has made just shy of nine hundred million dollars. So you've essentially had a billion-dollar movie franchise off of a film that initially cost the guy fifteen thousand dollars to make. It's it's you know it's cheap if I could cover that on a credit card. <laughs> yeah. Fuck me, that's 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 crazy profit. We're in the wrong business. Unmonetized podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, re- relying on people buying us virtual coffees and our day jobs, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, guys. We're not we're not starving out here. Not that you were worried at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, look, it's it's still. I know people have mixed opinions on the film. I really enjoy it. It's generally regarded as a very good found footage I, horror. I don't have mixed opinions on it. I think it's shit. And that's that's not a mixed opinion. That is, I'm very firmly held on that. Eighty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh really? I didn't realize it that high. Yeah. We are the seventeen (laughs) percent. And so yeah, like thinking in you know just looking at terms of how money was saved to make the film. So one one of the big savings there was no camera crew. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it was typically set up on a tripod. So and that was obviously quite purposeful to give it. Um, more of an authentic feel for the found footage and and what they were doing and also there's elements of it where it's filmed by the male lead and it turns out that he not only being an aspiring actor was also had a background in operating cameras for for films so that kind of worked in their favor there as well 
they also borrowed from Blair Witch Project in the sense that they used uh, what's called retro scripting. So essentially giving the actors an idea of what's going on, but no lines to try and you know create this more authentic conversation. Unlike One Cut of the Dead, these actors were paid for their work, <laughs> um, a whopping $500 each. So they definitely uh, didn't spend too much on um, Did, did on they casting. say how long they were, how long filming was? Ah, it's like you've read my next bullet point. Ah. The movie was shot in the director's home, as I think I've mentioned previously, and it was shot on a seven-day shoot, day and night. $500 for seven days' work? Yeah. It's not too bad. Yeah, it's what that works out at yeah about two thousand dollars a month. I feel like I feel like we'd price more. So if you are listening and you are making a new paranormal activity film, I'll happily star in it for six hundred dollars. <laughs> and yeah, even going back to like the the reception of the film, like people were leaving screenings because they were legitimately scared of the of what they were watching. Um, and you know that is an impressive reaction to get for a movie that was shot so little. Not only did it get Spielberg's attention. It also genuinely scared him. So again, <laughs> apologies for retreading some ground from a previous podcast, but he was watching the film on the like studio, um, the the original cut on the the studio DVD, I guess, and um, was watching it at home at night and turned it off because he was too scared to carry on watching it, and then finished it the next day for then saying that they they should buy. I think it was DreamWorks should buy the rights to the movie. Have you ever had to turn a horror movie off because it was too scary or struggled to get through it? I've never had to turn a horror movie off because it was too scary. There are two films that I really struggled with and that was just because it was it was too much and that was the aforementioned Cannibal Holocaust <laughs> and the film that shall not be named. Um, but for the listeners, yeah. we probably have to name it now. Because no, we don't. We don't. Just... We do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they're the they're the only two. I've never never been too scared. I've always felt a disassociation between what I'm watching because I know it's a film and reality. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely been stuff where, in particularly in those two films, you're like, I it's, this is a bit much. Yeah, I, I struggled with. So I, uh, <laughs> as we've mentioned before, uh, whenever I was ill, I would watch films which were definitely out of my age range. So I'd watched horror films, but like you said, there was always I was general I was good with them because gory stuff seems really basically cartoony right like you Mm -hmm. said there's there's like a separation between the two the first horror film i saw which wasn't like that and that really fucked me up for a while was the sixth sense i watched i watched the sixth sense (laughs) far too young and my parents were just like well he's fine with like you know all of this stuff we've shown him he'll be all right with that it's oh cool uh if it's all right with you guys i'm not gonna sleep for three days (laughs) but the last one I struggled to get, not struggle to get through, but the last one that really hit me was, is it Host or Hosts? The Zoom one. Host. Yeah, Host is so good. So I was watching that by myself and other people were in the house. They kept coming into and out of the room. And whenever they came into the room, I would like shit a brick. It was, it was great. But I, I, I do find it interesting, like, especially with Spielberg. Like As a filmmaker, you'd think there'd be even more of a, separation between horror and actually being deeply affected by it. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. And maybe the type of person that that is spends all of their time 
coming up with these films maybe they have a particularly overactive imagination so there might be a little bit more peter pan (laughs) was robin williams the uh also you speak speaking of hosts there's probably a very good shout um that that could have uh, been included on this list it was that was made for less than a million dollars and that was just is one of the best horror films i've seen in recent times i i think horror films because horror films for so long have been they've always had a bit i think of like a diy vibe to it i yeah i I feel like a lot of the proportion of cheap films which are good there's probably a lot of horror films in it Um, because i think a talented director doesn't necessarily need a lot of money to do that but yeah i still can't get over how much money paranormal activity made and we've talked about it before (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. I mean, look, and you know, say there's there's ways that they kept the cost down. It was all filmed in. It's the the director's called Oren Pelly. It was all filmed in his house. All of the effects were basically practical effects with the camera, um, and then sort of enhanced on his own PC. Um, he bought the Ouija board from Costco, apparently, and yeah, one of the one of the things that actually stood out when when reading um up on this is that it's actually the film is used as an example in film school as to how to successfully make a great movie on a really tight budget and it talks oh, wow. about a lot of the things that that can be done in order to do that and it talks about you know being being really strict with your filming schedules and like he's obviously packed all of this into a seven day shoot and being able to do stuff like that and also, I have to say, you know, the guy has obviously gone on to do really well because I'm sure that as as part of so as part of the acquisition from DreamWorks for the um, I think they gave him three hundred fifty thousand for the uh, acquisition of the movie rights. I don't know what the the terms were, but I'm it also included um, the sequels. I'm assuming he's made a fair amount out of it, given that the the series is. Um, Nearly went on to gross a uh, billion dollars. Basically revitalized found footage for a while as well. Yeah, I have to say, fair play to 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 Oren Pelly because he he probably put his money where his mouth is. He stumped up the three grand for the camera that they used. I think that we've we've talked about this a lot in good bad movies when we've when we've discussed them in the sense that. Typically, when people finance, write, and direct a movie, it, <laughs> it tends to end in an absolute car crash. And he kind of went down the good bad movie route, but came out with one of the most successful horror movies of all time. And I mean, fair play. I mean, it, it's not many steps away from a good bad movie, is it? No, not at all. It's it, just done right. Yeah, it just it just needs the uh, the Landers sisters um, or. or it's, it's, it's just uh, Pat- missing. Patricia Arquette was another that kept popping up. <laughs> but yeah, look, I, I, it's kind of treading a lot of old ground because I know I brought some of these points up when we discussed it before. But, you know, as a feat of filmmaking for such little budget, yes, there was more money pumped into it. But, you know, that was really for one reshooting of one scene. It's, it's so impressive that, A, look, I, I know you don't like it, I enjoy the film. I think it's a very, very good film for the genre. And just from the point of view of like how much money he has gone on to make, it's astounding, really, when you think. There are very few investment instruments out there where you're going to make 
an 89,000% return on your investment, unless maybe you accidentally bought Bitcoin back I was in gonna the say, day. Yeah, or, or like <laughs> discovered oil. Yeah. Like you bought you bought like a 10 pound pickaxe and accidentally found oil. <laughs> but yeah, it's I I think it would have been remiss of us to talk about a uh, a low budget film without talking about one of the most profitable films that's ever been made. My final choice then. So my final choice came down to two and I felt like the discussion around both of them would have been so similar because they're so kind of they're the quintessential DIY filmmaking examples that are always mentioned. I thought I would just pick one. So honourable mention goes out to Clerks, which was made from an insurance payout on a car and a load of maxed out credit cards. Uh, but my final choice is it is the example, I think, for low-budget filmmaking, and that is 1992's El Mariachi. So the Robert Rodriguez film. And... El Mariachi came in under budget at £5,000. So he made the entire film for £5,000. There was, similar to Paranormal Activity, um, after he'd filmed it and it was acquired, there was additional money pumped into it. So they got an additional, I think, $140,000. For all intents and purposes, this was made for £5,000. For £5,000? You could buy a 2010 Audi A6 Saloon, which has done 115,000 miles. Uh, Gibson Custom 1959 Les Paul Standard Reissue in Washed Cherry Sunburst. Or a return business class trip from Heathrow to Sydney, but in shitty hours. No, I, I appreciate the clarification there. Yeah, because it, like, it balloons, man. It balloons. But it is it is possible to get one, but it'll be a, a horrible, horrible time. So do you do you know, before we get into El Mariachi, which is a very, very good film, um, do you know why, do you know the significance of this film to perhaps even this podcast existing? Is this the Guinness World Record? No. Then no, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so back in... What I want to say was probably 2004, you lent me the El Mariachi Desperado double bill box set. And I think was probably... Triple bill box set. Oh, sorry. Once, yes, once it has once Mexico, Mexico, Mexico on it as well. Yeah, yeah. And was probably one of the first times that... Uh, it's definitely the first time I, I watched these films. Probably one of the first times that we connected over cinema. And yeah, it's it's oh, no, this getting, is I'm where getting, we are. I'm getting emotional <laughs> thinking about it. Oh, good times. Good times. No, I I'd completely forgotten about that. It was uh we'll 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 have like a top three episode list of uh films we bonded over. It would just be like <laughs> El Mariachi, Tokyo Gore Police. <laughs> just I mean, given the amount of time as we've brought it up, it'll be Jojo Rabbit, won't it? But so, yeah. back to El Mariachi, the <laughs> cornerstone of our friendship. So, the Guinness World Record I thought you were talking about, because I thought you were meaning this specific specific episode, is it is the lowest budgeted film ever to gross more than a million dollars. So, it may not have been as profitable as Paranormal Activity, but 
for five thousand pounds he still made over a million dollars i'm mixing my currencies i apologize um, <laughs> so there is a brilliant book on this by robert rodriguez called rebel without the crew um, and he also does um, a 10 minute film school which was i believe a dvd extra on desperado about how he made this film and how he saved money and then on once a time in mexico there was a 10 minute film school uh, sorry 10 minute cooking school on how to make the mexican dish johnny depp eats throughout the film nice so i've got a couple of points so first of all robert rodriguez raised the majority of the budget by participating in experimental clinical drug trials in austin so he literally put his body on the line to be able to have this money to make this film and he says the entire thing comes from trying to cut costs examples of him cost cutting so the opening scene is a shootout in a jail and they filmed that in a real local jail in this mexican town they shot in with the real warden and a real guard so that they didn't have to pay actors and they didn't have to rent clothing because the warden and the guard would have the <laughs> uniform they didn't use a slate so the i believe the actual term is clicky board thing um, board, right? yeah they would have the actors hold up their fingers instead <laughs> they didn't have a dolly to move the camera they had robert rodriguez in a wheelchair they also didn't use synchronized sound so they shot visual without audio and then he would go in and they would re record the audio afterwards and a great thing with that is so he covers this i think on the chef show where he's talking to john favreau about it and he mentions how people, a lot of reviewers loved his kind of really quick editing style. How uh, even in dialogue, he made it seem like it was action packed because he was cutting from one to the other so quickly. And the only reason he had to do that was because when you're recording audio and visual separately, you can't always dub it up perfectly. So whenever the dialogue didn't dub up, he would cut away to something else. And people were like, oh, I love your style. And I think he just kind of nodded along with, yeah yeah we meant to do this just lean um, into it <laughs> yeah all the lighting was done with desk lamps so i think he had two desk lamps that they had to hold really close up to people's faces uh he didn't have a crew so i know you you mentioned uh paranormal activity didn't have camera crews he didn't have anyone if you were an actor and you weren't in the scene you were helping him do stuff behind the camera and i'm saying camera not cameras because he only had one camera so he would film dialogue and so like i'd be filming you and you would say a line and then i would zoom in and you'd say the next line and then i'd zoom out and then zoom back in i might tell you to freeze so i can readjust where the camera is but that would make it seem like there were multiple cameras being used to film you when actually it's just the one and what helped him with that is rob rodriguez wasn't just the director he was also editing it he also did the sound he basically did everything behind the scenes so he was kind of editing it in his mind as he was going with it to save money they kept the bloopers in the film so there's a scene where you can quite clearly see robert Rodriguez filming reflected in a mirror uh there's a part where uh the bus scene where he sl like slides in front of the bus mm -hmm. he throws his guitar case up onto a balcony and originally he misses the balcony so he just zoomed in so you couldn't see the guitar not land where it should. 
It's it's fascinating. Uh, he shot it on 16mm instead of 35mm. Instead of using real guns, they used water pistols. The only real guns they had were borrowed from the police, and the blanks would make them jam. So he would shoot once, and he would have to film it, and shoot again, and they'd film it from a different angle. And then he would cut it together to look like it was rapid fire. Uh, when he was shooting people, they couldn't afford squibs, which is where fake blood comes from. So they had to use a weightlifter's belt with condoms filled with fake blood in. Nice. So the the entire plot of the film. So it follows a mariachi who is mistaken for this ruthless criminal by a drug lord. And the criminal has his guitar case full of guns. And the mariachi has his guitar. And they get mixed up. And it's all hilarious. But Robert Rodriguez couldn't afford two guitar cases. So they only had one guitar case. Nice. There is a scene where you... So for all the close-up shots of him like opening the guitar case and there being guns there... He did have a backup, but it was rubbish. Uh, it wasn't even the same colour. And he decided that, well, we can work our way around it. We don't have to spend out on black spray paint to turn this guitar case black. It's every... So on this 10-minute film score, which you can find on YouTube, and it really is a brilliant video, he mentions that once you start the money hose going, you can't stop it. So his... It, his entire thing with this film was yeah, cutting as much cost as he could. So they hardly filmed any, like the roles of film they use is dramatically lower than they usually would be. He converted it all into VHS and then edited it from the VHS because that means you're saving money on actually cut, like actually cutting the film. Right. Which then also means that his cut of it looks a bit better than the cinematic release because this additional money was spent upgrading it to 35mm, so it does look grainier and lower quality, but you can't really release a 60mm film in the cinema. But it does look cheap. Like, I mean, there's no there's no ignoring that. It does look like a cheap film. I wouldn't say it looks like it was made for £5,000, but for what it does for this kind of film making, it's you can't not talk about it. It is a fun film. It is great. It led to Desperado, which I still think has one of the best gun battles in. Yeah, I, I think that's it. I think it is. It, it's distinctly like if you if you look at it in comparison to some of the other films, and even go back to like the Dallas Buyers Club example, right? That yes, it costs five million dollars. It's a lot more than five thousand pounds, but there you. It's it's surprising when you're like, oh, they made that for only five million dollars. Yeah, it's not. You're not uh, overly surprised that this only. Yeah, it's still a bit surprising. Five thousand pounds is very cheap, but it is not as surprising if you've seen the film. The quality of it is definitely uh, the quality in the context of how it presents, not necessarily as a filmmaking, is is definitely yeah, visible. Yeah. But you can't get given that list of how they saved money. You can't necessarily tell that from watching it. No, uh, you you can tell it's cheap because of well, again, they're they're not going to have professional makeup stuff. They're they're not professional actors. They're the set does you know there aren't sets. <laughs> it's it is done kind of very you know guerrilla style. But the actual filmmaking is you can. Robert Rodriguez, I think, is a very exciting filmmaker, and you can see that just from this film. 
So I'm very interested to see he's obviously got the whole Book of Boba Fett thing coming up. He's the leading creative uh, voice behind that. So I can see that being very interesting. Yeah, I, I Robert Rodriguez is, is one of those that's up there that, you know, if it's a Robert Rodriguez film, I'm going to give it a go because he's he's just, he's great. I, I love a lot of the stuff. Not saying that everything he's done is amazing, but like he's one of those directors where you're like, the Robert Rodriguez film, I'm going to check it out. And yeah, so like I said, this this could have, in a parallel universe, this could have been Clerks, but I, I think El Mariachi so perfectly encapsulates low-budget filmmaking, I had to go for it. I was, so so going back to when I, I borrowed these DVDs of you, I was so fucking confused when I put El Mariachi on because A, I was expecting Antonio Banderas and B, <laughs> I was expecting an English language film and I got neither of them. <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> what has this prick given me? <laughs> I'd strongly recommend watching El Mariachi even just from a, it, it is a fun action film anyway, but it definitely leaves you thinking just like, I could, I could do this. Like it is a it is a proper guide to amateur filmmaking. Uh, strongly recommend the ten minute film school he does. Um, and I haven't read it, but apparently Rebel Without a Crew is there's a lot of directors who hold that up as like the bible when it comes it to is making films. So hard to find a copy of it. I've yeah. I've had it on my Amazon wish list for ages, but it never drops below a, like a used price that is not it's probably about as much as it costs to film el mariachi well I, I checked today to see if there was like a kindle copy i could get so i could quickly you know have a look through it for this and i'm fairly sure the cheapest copy was like 45 50 quid it's uh it's mental but it's a great film and once of a time in mexico not as good but i'd still recommend watching it because uh johnny depp has a fake arm and enrico inglesias kills a man and Someone has a chain gun that's their penis? Is that? Yes. No. Yes. No, it is, because it's the gun from from Dust Till Dawn, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he's got his little cock revolver. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it Johnny Depp? Or is it... I'm not sure if it's Johnny Depp or not, but they're... Yeah, because it's a, it's a callback to the From Dust, Dust Till Dawn, Dawn thing. Which is another film I haven't seen in a long time. But I'm also recording this on a work laptop and I'm not Googling cock revolver. On to my final choice then. Final choice. Which has I, I just all of the mentions of things that you were talking about throughout El Mariachi. There's just so many nice links into this film and it just fills me with joyous glee of our wonderful overlapping choices. So this is a film, uh, directorial debut. Um, similar to El Mariachi, and is the directorial debut of Robert Rodriguez's um, Grindhouse co-director, Quentin Tarantino. And that film is Reservoir Dogs. So Reservoir Dogs, admittedly, in comparison to a lot of the films we've spoken about, has a fairly large budget of 1.2 million US dollars. But I think, as I go through, I'll, I'll explain why, but I think it's even, you know, with that budget, it's it's still surprising it was made for so little. It's it was actually originally set to be made for a budget of thirty thousand um, dollars. So this is what wow. Tarantino had planned for, 
which came straight out of the $50,000 that he sold the script for True Romance for. Um, he was basically going to use that to, to make Reservoir Dogs with his friends. Funny enough, on 16mm <laughs> was the plan, and in black and white. That's the That was the Clerks trick as well. Clerks is black and white because it was cheaper to get black and white film than colour yep. film. And the way that it ended up getting funded, which sounds incredibly far for you know when you're telling someone a story and you're like oh yeah my cousin's best friend's wife's brother yeah the the script for um reservoir dogs found its way to harvey keitel by way of lawrence bender's acting teacher's wife who <laughs> <laughs> who got it in front of harvey keitel somehow and he basically left a voicemail for Tarantino and says, I want to be in the film and I'll co-produce it and basically help raise the 1.2 million to help shoot it. So similar to um, some of these other films, the and I think this is this seems to be quite common for low-budget movies in general, is that people find ways to do things, creative ways to do things, but they lean into them as well. And I think that kind of really... Is, is part of the charm of some of these films. So one of the, the big things that was done to save money is that they that Tarantino didn't show the heist. And that's quite, you know, it's, it's consistently ranked as one of the best heist movies of all time, but it doesn't show the heist. Yeah, that's a, I hadn't thought about that before. <laughs> and yeah, as I say, that was for budgetary reasons, but actually Tarantino really leaned into this. He enjoyed keeping the element of the heist really quite ambiguous. And I think you know that's kind of peppered throughout his career as well, like the whole briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Like he really leaned into the ambiguity of that. What you know, what is in the briefcase? Why is it so sought after, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My fav- my favorite theory on that is it's um, uh, Wallace's soul. Yeah, and that's why he's got the plaster on the back yeah. of his neck, right? But yeah, look, it's. It's such a good film, you know, ninety-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Safe to say, it launched Quentin Tarantino's career, paved the way for the his universe of films that that he's brought out. And ER episodes. And ER episodes. <laughs> and five minutes in Sin City. <laughs> oh, it's the car. Yeah, the bit in the yeah. car. Um, pre Grindhouse and Death Proof, I think. But yes, yes, he wanted like there was there's some similarities or at least like he was inspired by his idea for death proof and was why he wanted to cast stuff anyway tangent as with lots of great tarantino films there's a very very good soundtrack to uh reservoir dogs and obviously with a fairly meager budget there wasn't a huge amount to spend on the soundtrack so the entirety of the soundtrack budget was sent was was spent acquiring the Steelers wheel song uh, for yeah. the torture scene and basically they managed to finance the rest of the soundtrack by agreeing to a record deal to sell the soundtrack as an album with the movie but yeah it, the the whole of the amount of the film uh sorry the budget for the soundtrack was spent on that one song but yeah i mean it's a great soundtrack you've got a little green bag on there i got you but joe tex obviously the the stuck in the middle with you um that interestingly um you know just to link in to all of our our previous choices and stuff was actually there was a consideration it was either going to be stuck in the little you or a um plink plink pink floyd song um i forget the name of it which is bugging me but um that there was one of the two choices there also given the budget i think one of the most notable things about this film 
is the cast. Now, I get a lot of these guys were at the earlier stage of the career, but when you consider the film cost 1.2 million, it's got Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi. Like, it is an impressive, impressive cast. Um, also, for you, fun fact: Did you know um, who was um, who was also considered to play Nice Guy Eddie? I am going to assume, as you said, for me, Nicolas Cage. It was Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That is, that would be a very different film, but I would watch the shit out of it. <laughs> I'd be interested to know how many of the people are in it because they liked Quentin Tarantino as an up-and-coming filmmaker or because they wanted to do something with Harvey Keitel. Yeah. I think I... a lot of a lot of lower-budget films, I think a lot of people will take a pay cut to be with the right person. Yeah, and I don't know, because I don't... Before this, I don't think... Obviously, he'd written True Romance, but I don't know how much else... I don't know, it was Four Rooms before this, which was a odd film which obviously tim roth was in as well no so four four rooms was later okay so reservoir dogs i I always forget that reservoir dogs was out before true romance yeah he sold the script to true romance but then um yeah, yeah this got made before and he really doesn't like he wanted to direct it right yeah so the guy so when he sold the script for true romance that originally they tried to buy reservoir dogs and he flat out refused said he was gonna direct reservoir dogs but they could have true romance what a thing to be able to say. Right. So you can't have Reservoir Dogs, but I'll, I guess I'll let you have True Romance. Yeah. Similar to what you mentioned with um, El Mariachi, actually. Um, there, there wasn't really much of a budget for wardrobe, so the actors were asked to bring their own clothes to keep the budget down. The one that really stands out is um, Chris Penn's tracksuit jacket, which is yeah. like proper 90s like um, shell suit. Um, You've got Michael Madsen's um, jacket and trousers from his suit were from two different suits, and Steve Buscemi wore black jeans rather than um, rather than suit trousers. But the suits themselves were actually donated by a designer who apparently just loved the American crime genre and so was happy to donate suits, which is <laughs> which is nice. There wasn't enough money to have police assistance for traffic control, so in the scene where Mister Pink forces the woman out of her car and drives off. They had to time it so the lights were green. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is just brilliant. Obviously everything nearly everything is filmed in, in that one location to keep costs down. Um even to the fact that Mr. Orange's apartment was actually just the upstairs of that warehouse made to look like an apartment. Oh, cool. Everything is is just in this one sort of con- self contained um warehouse that but yeah, also, um, so like the another cost-saving thing, the Cadillac that Mr. Blonde drives was actually owned by Michael Madsen because um, there wasn't enough money to, to hire a car. It was also not, obviously, not as tight a shoot as Paranormal Activity, but it was shot on a fairly tight timescale of 35 days. And you mentioned Dust Till Dawn, uh, from Dust Till Dawn on the, the previous choice. So the special effects for Reservoir Dogs were done by Robert Kurtzman, free of charge in exchange for Quentin Tarantino writing a script for Dust to Dawn. Oh, fuck. I, I didn't know that either. I, I know Tarantino's involved in a load of stuff like that because he did, so the scene in Sin City you mentioned, he directed yeah. for a dollar. Oh, really? So that, and Robert Rodriguez did the soundtrack or gave some songs for Kill Bill for a dollar. Oh, nice. So it was like a an, an exchange, but I think for union reasons or 
for some reason they couldn't it do it for be. free. You had to. Uh, I mean, I yeah, I, I don't a know. Nominal what the... value has to be exchanged. Yeah, so they did it for a dollar. Yeah, look, it's just uh, there's there's so much in it. it I, again, I admit it is a it is a larger budget than the films that the other films we've spoken about, but it is I think such an important film. It's voted voted um the best independent movie of all time. It's voted one of the most influential movies of the past fifteen years by Empire Magazine. Obviously, this is um a while ago because it didn't come out fifteen years ago. It came out much longer ago, but um, it's just such a pivotal piece of filmmaking interestingly as well you're talking um earlier in paranormal activity this isn't to the budget at all but you're talking paranormal activity about how like people were walking out because of like being too scared uneasy blah blah um wes craven walked out of the of a screening of reservoir dogs because he was too grossed out by the torture scene wes craven yeah and nightmare on elm street <laughs> wes craven yeah, yeah the man who had a bed eat johnny depp Okay, because his reasoning was that he's like within horror, he was pushing gore and stuff to its limits, whereas this was just like some kind of exploitation or something. Um, but yeah, not not relevant to the topic. Not just sorry, not just Wes Craven, Rick Baker. Yeah. So Rick Baker is the special makeup effects, like the makeup effects guy who did like an American Werewolf in London. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's that is mental. <laughs> and also, again, just to neatly link back into my first choice, Tarantino thanks Terry Gilliam in the credits for the advice that he gave him for uh, this film at a Sundance workshop that um, Tarantino ah. was uh, was in with him. So, yeah, it's you know, again, you you, I mean, what if you compare it to? Tarantino's most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's budget for that was ninety six million. So this is made for a fraction of that, and is arguably probably a better film. I really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I think Reservoir Dogs is probably a, a probably a better movie. And yeah, it's just it's incredibly impressive that a film that you know is is so highly regarded has so many sort of high highly renowned stars in it that it was done for just over 1.2 million i am intrigued as to what the thirty thousand dollar black and white version of reservoir dogs would have looked like i'm sure it probably wouldn't be i i have a very romantic view of it in my head that um it would be like this piece of cinematic excellence probably wouldn't have been but i i do I, I would like to see it. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's too big a what if, isn't it? It's like you don't, you just don't know what it would be like. But I'm gonna for the for the sake of my my sanity, I I feel like it would have been just cinematic masterpiece, and I'll, I'll hold on to that. In summary, then, out of yours, what would your top three be? And I think more importantly, what's your interpretation of the top three? So how are you going to measure? What's in your top three? It's a difficult one. There's a lot of factors that you can look at in terms of, you know, if you went on pure profitability, obviously paranormal activity has to be up there. If you're looking at... I I think for me, it's the, the quality and the importance to cinema as a whole versus the comparative budget that it was made for. 
and so I think in that respect and to taking the quality of the films into account, I would go Holy Grail at number one, Reservoir Dogs at number two, and then Paranormal Activity, despite being the cheapest made film at number three, um, because I think its impact on cinema as a whole is probably not comparable to the other. Yeah, it's a tough one. So <laughs> the combined budget for my films, uh, without factoring in the post-production stuff for El Mariachi, comes to £177,000. <laughs> which, given you have films like Bronson and One Cut of the Dead, which has made £20 million, and then El Mariachi, which is a crazy, crazily influential piece of cinema, it's just insane, isn't it? I'm, I, I, I'm struggling to narrow them down to a top three, which is bad because that's the entire fucking point of this podcast. <laughs> um, out of those three, I would go. All of these are on the list because they are so cheap. So I'm just going to go for what films I preferred. So I am going to put El Mariachi third. Okay. But obviously with the caveat that, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you have to acknowledge how, you know, if we are doing this purely on just the budget, it would be number one on any list. I don't think there's any film that was made for that amount of money, which has been anywhere near as influential as El Mariachi has. Then it's between Bronson and One Cut of the Dead, which is actually really difficult. One Cut of the Dead is obviously a lot cheaper. I really enjoyed One Cut of the Dead. But Bronson is just so... It, it, I think it is one of my favourite films, actually. So I have, actually, just gone for the, the order I said them in. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so for, so for me, I'm going to go Al, Al Mariachi. Uh, I'd then go One Cut of the Dead, and then I'd go Bronson, because Bronson's one of my favourite films, and it's still made for basically fucking nothing. Nice. Combined list, then. Mm. Has El Mariachi going lower thrown you? Um, El Mariachi, I, I, I basically agree. It takes a, a bit of a hit because everything changes so drastically, and then you have Desperado, and like the because it's not actually like it is, but it isn't like doesn't feel a fluid seat when when the sequel is in a different language with a different main character. Yeah, it kind of throws yeah. you out of it in that respect and the fact that it is you can tell it was made for a little amount of money yeah i mean if it was a list of films i think you should watch if you wanted to make films it's it's number one right it'll be yeah the thing that's thrown me is the fact that one cut of the dead isn't number one to be honest with you because for me that is that's a film that not that i've fallen out of love with watching films or anything but it really reignited something in me when i watched it that was like you know there, there's some there's films out there that make you think fuck this is what cinema could be yeah and can be and i want to watch more stuff like this because it's just I, there's just not enough stuff that's that creative and that well done and that really just slapped me around the face and yeah really kind of similar to what you're saying as well it's like it kind of makes you think do i just pack all this in and try and make a film because that would be yeah. cool. <laughs> but it, it's not just, it's a film made by people 
who clearly love film about people who love film making a film. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's so, like I said, it's so meta, but yeah, I, I just, I strongly believe Bronson is one of the most underrated films ever made, which is why I put it in at number one. It's a tricky one for me because I, I unfortunately haven't got around to watching Bronson and it's one of those ones that's been on my list for a long time and just, yeah, just haven't got around to seeing it. Um, I've seen actually it's on Prime, so I, I will give it a watch yes, after this. Yes, I, I, um, it's, it's just fun. It's not, I mean, fun might be the wrong word, but it, it's so, it's the right kind of like experimental film. Yeah. And... It's surreal without really being alienating. It's different without being different for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. it. It feels like all the weirdness of it is, given it's about a guy who is distinctly weird, right? Like, it makes sense to do a film where... So I'm just going to... I I was looking up after I checked in with you to see if he was still alive. Just did a quick Google. And apparently he said he might be getting out of prison this year. So don't call him weird too much. It's a good kind of weird. He'd, he'd like it. He'd appreciate it. <laughs> You know, everyone's weird. You know, people are strange. Saved. Yes. I mean, fuck it. I mean, Charlie, if you if you want to come on the episode, uh, you know, we'll have a prison special or something. It'll be great. The the problem I see with you not having seen Bronson is I'm very aware to include Bronson in the list would involve you relegating one of your favourite films <laughs> out of the top three. The thing is, Ian, I trust you. And I will take your words on the um, the brilliance of Bronson. And between now and our next recording, I will make it a priority to watch Bronson. And if it doesn't quite live up to the standards, then we will have a um, we'll have a reshuffle on the next episode. We'll do, we'll come in in the intro, and we'll just I'll give you a stern talking to. Yeah. So I'm I'll, I'll talk you through my my logic. So I. I say we take Reservoir Dogs out of the question just because it was made for... It, it, it is a big jump up to Reservoir Dogs. Uh, yeah, like Reservoir I, Dogs, I like in, in the grand scheme of cinema, Reservoir Dogs was net made for nothing. But if we go Bronson, Holy Grail, One Cut of the Dead, our total budget for all three of those is £379,000. Yeah, and that is fucking crazy. It is because between us, we could probably raise that amount of money, like to to mortgage a house or something. So I think we yeah. would probably. The, it just seems nuts that those films were made for that money. Yeah, I mean, I would. Um, with that in mind, if you do watch Bronson and decide you don't like it, I would sooner shift Paranormal Activity up. Okay. Just to just to keep with our just to uh, keep the. Keep the budget, budget down. feeling because obviously once you uh, turn the money hose on, it's hard to turn it off. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, we're 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 listening to your lessons, Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> who also, if you're listening, feel free to come on the podcast and tell us how to make pizza. I was just about to say, bring pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looked at it. So looked delicious. We'll put Bronson third. Okay. I I think it should be higher, but you haven't seen it. I will go third. I also, now you've mentioned the one cut of the dead stuff, I am starting to remember how I felt seeing it the first time. Yeah. And it was something special. So for me, it's whether you want to go number one is the cheapest one of the top three or Holy Grail, one of the funniest films ever made. I think I, I think one 
Cut of the Dead needs to be number one because of the A, because of the size of the budget. It's got one in the title. <laughs> yep. And and B just because of that. As I say, just that feeling of watching that movie. It just it it it's one of those one of those rare moments where it's just like damn, like this is this is great. Yeah. Not to say that Holy Grail isn't up there in, in doing that from a from a comedy point of view, but also I prefer Life of Brian if we're talking obviously Life of Brian was made for more money, but um I prefer Life of Brian as a as a Python film. So um that also comes into it somewhat. But yeah, I would go well purely based on the oh shit, this this is what cinema can be. I think One Cut of the Dead has to be number one. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, 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 I never know. My favourite Monty Python film is always the one I saw last. I think we talked about this before. Yeah. So right now, right now it's Holy Grail. But then I'll watch Life of Brian. I'll just go, like, nah, you know what this is? This is obviously the best film, isn't it? And then I'll watch Holy Grail again. It's interesting because a lot of people say it's the one that they saw first as well. That's, that's definitely my... I, I saw Life of Brian before I saw Holy Grail. And it's just been... Yeah, ingrained into me, but um, I mean they're all. It's that is no, you know, saying that Life of Brian is my favorite Python film is no slight on Holy Grail. Holy Grail is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So the podcast nobody asked for's top three films made with basically no money. We have number three with Bronson. We have number two, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and we have number one, One Cut of the Dead. If you agreed with our choices. If you're annoyed none of us said clerks, you can find us on Instagram at the podcast nobody asked for. And you can also buy us a coffee over at cove-fee.com. Yes. Which says coffee. Get it? Yeah. Although uh, at- for a long time I was like, what? What's a ko-fi? Yeah, I had exactly the same <laughs> thing. It was to the point when you sent me over the link, when I clicked on it, I out loud said, oh, it's coffee. <laughs> yeah. And obviously... A virtual coffee, the idea being it's a couple of quid to chuck towards helping with things like hosting fees, etc, etc, because we do this out of the bottom of our hearts of love and we get absolutely no return. (laughs) Um, And we'd appreciate it, and that is also at the podcast Nobody Asked For. Yes. Um, And if you want to kind of warn me ahead of time that Ian's duped me and... um, Bronson shouldn't be in the list. Tweet me about it. Warn me before I put it on Prime, and that uh, will be at at nobody asked for pod uh, with the number four because apparently after however many episodes we've done, I can't remember that. <laughs> and we're at the same address on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. So it was uh, it was a nice cheap episode. I, I liked that. Yep. It's uh, it was good. You know, no one no one wants to turn on the money. Folks. for this.